0: I've never run a marathon and I probably never will. But I have successfully kept putting out two episodes per week up until the election and I'm pretty proud of that. If you're enjoying the show, feel free to leave a review and or rate us on iTunes. It'll help. Finally, vote. Make a plan. Vote early. Consider volunteering to drive people to the polls on election day. Get involved. It is meaningful. Okay, so since I taped this original episode with Neil about libertarianism, the McMullen, the Evan McMullen thing happened. Uh, This possibility of him winning Utah, and there's even a couple weird scenarios where he could be chosen to be president by the House of Representatives. It's very weird. You can look it up. But it is a real factor in the election now, especially in the state of Utah. So just today, I had a short conversation with a McMullen supporter, and that's going to be at the beginning. Then there's the nice long chat with Neil the Libertarian. So first, let's dive into this Evan McMullen story. Okay, I'm here with Alan Noble. He is a theologian and writer and a buddy of mine, but also quite politically active and is a bit of an expert on this very new phenomenon of Evan McMullen. So I figured we'd talk to him for a short segment and just get Evan McMullen into the conversation because it's a new thing. So Alan, first of all, tell us just a little bit about yourself so we know who you are and we can trust you.
1: Yes, so I'm uh, an assistant professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University, and in addition to that, I'm editor-in-chief at a web magazine called uh, Christ and Pop Culture, and I'm the co-founder of a new political organization called uh, Public Faith. Um, so got my hands in several baskets there and I've written for, uh, the Atlantic and Vox and Buzzfeed and first things and different places, uh, particularly on political, political issues.
0: That's all we need to know about you for now. I think we're going to talk <laughs> later about some other issues on a different episode, but right now we're just zeroing in on the McMullen. So yeah.
1: who is this guy and what is his basic platform? Yeah, so Evan McMullen is hes a, a former CIA operative, which sounds very nefarious, but he also worked in the House for the Republicans doing some policy work. Essentially, the story is that once a lot of conservatives realized that Trump was probably going to get the nomination, uh, many uh, well-connected conservatives panicked and said, this is this is horrible. This is bad for us. It's bad for our country. We need to do something else. Uh, and of course, as you know, the, there aren't really a lot of options. Once the GOP gives a nomination, uh, that's about it. Everything else is a long shot. But considering the disdain many conservatives have for Donald Trump, um, the decision was made that they just need to do something. So uh, a number of these leaders and consultants went to people like uh, Mitt Romney, begged him to run, he said no, they went to Ben Sass, he said no. And after the uh, official nomination, Evan McMullen had been asked by a few people if he would consider running and uh, as an independent, and he agreed to, and, and his uh, motive was that he knew from the start, and he still knows, that his shot at winning the White House is incredibly small. But he also knows that, as a conservative, he cannot support Donald Trump. He promotes and stands for and represents ideas that are anathema to conservatism and and to morality frankly and so he he decided I'm gonna roll the dice do something that's crazy and I'm gonna try to make an independent bid and uh, he had the support of some some wealthy some wealthy donors and some top again disillusioned Republican, Consultants who said, "I can't support Trump. I'd love to help this long shot because it's the best thing we have going for us." So that's that's kind of where he came from, uh, and 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 his mission about his platform. You know, he hits the, the traditional sort of conservative, um, you know, standards. He's he's concerned about entitlement spending. He's very pro-life. He's concerned about national defense. But there are a number of platforms that he has that that he has listed or that I've heard him speak about. that are very encouraging to me as a young conservative because they represent a lot of the issues that I the concerns that I have. So one of them is he's deeply concerned about minorities and the fact that that conservatives, the GOP, have alienated minorities and opposed them for decades. Right. And so he's concerned about things like criminal justice and policing. And that's refreshing. So since he is an independent candidate and not running
0: on the GOP ticket. Yeah. His platform can technically be whatever he wants it to be. But you're saying it represents basically a classic Republican view with a few things that are refreshing to you as a younger conservative that's that right. are maybe in your mind a little bit more in line with where young conservative voters are.
1: Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. And and he's made s- several statements to the effect that this is not just about this election, this is about sort of laying the groundwork for what comes next. Because the reality is, um, you know, when you vote for a candidate, you're also, we we talk about giving them a mandate, you know, and you can give a strong mandate or a weak mandate, depending on how uh, strong the vote is. Well, the support trump has received is giving gop politicians a kind of a mandate that this is that the voters want more of this and 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 yeah. supporting evan McMullen explicitly as a conservative is a is a way of offering another mandate and saying no no I, I i would rather vote i would rather take a vote from donald trump and give it to somebody who i extremely doubt is going to win but who represents values that I think are better for my neighbor and better for our country and better for all of us. That's the mandate. And, um, and so the hope is let's carry this forward. And whether it's a new party or it's just a a gutting or, you know, renovating of the GOP, something needs to change because this kind of, you know, Trump's rhetoric is completely unacceptable for the future, especially for millennial conservatives. It's just not, that's just not an option. We're not going to do it.
0: Now, when you're voting for an independent candidate, if you were the type of person who would have voted GOP, it's unlikely that any Democrats would vote for Evan McMullen, right? Because he doesn't really have many democratic policies. He's more, he's more of a classic Republican. So if you would have voted Republican, but you vote McMullen, in a sense, what you're saying is you're sending a signal to the GOP, Trump is not acceptable. If you nominate someone like Trump, you will not get my vote. These are yes. the things that I actually care about. If you nominate someone more like Evan McMullen, you'll get my vote again, basically is what you're saying.
1: That's right. And and what's, um, what's important to keep in mind there, too, because I... I've articulated just you know just what you've said I've articulated that in writings and in online comments and the response I'll typically get is you're just throwing your vote away that signal is meaningless but I think you know we need to take a step back and and recognize that for the vast majority of Americans their vote for the presidency is also Meaningless. Like it, it, it has an incredibly negligible effect. Voting is important. We all should do it. But let's be realistic. Any single vote has a very small effect. All right. So, so, so if you turn around and tell somebody who's voting third party, well, your vote is going to have an absolutely negligible effect. Uh, let's be honest and admit that all of our votes are like that. But, but the second thing I would say is that that one of the things that's unique that's happening is that Utah is in play for Evan McMullen can he
0: win Utah
1: I mean he can he absolutely can there's been a lot of pressure uh, the GOP is is terrified right now um, because they know what yeah. it's gonna mean if they lose Utah it's not just this presidency uh, they're fighting back against the mandate because if for a third party, who's selling himself, uh, positioning himself as a conservative to take electoral votes, not just, you know, 5% of the general election, but I took a state. That's a signal that... They can't ignore him. They cannot ignore the mistakes that they made. And so uh, the, you know, the murmurs I've been reading and s- watching what the GOP has been doing in, in Utah over the last week or so, it seems very clear that they are panicked and they are angry and they are pressuring uh, the representative senators in Utah To you know, stay away from McMullen. The uh, party line is come back home, right? Come back home, which is this, which is kind of gross uh, to me, you know, uh, because uh, why is that gross to you? Why is it gross? It's it's kind of a um, and and I hesitate to say this because domestic abuse is such a serious thing, but but it has a kind of abusive uh, language to it, right? Like we've abused you, we've ignored you, we've betrayed you and mocked you, but come back home. Come back home to us, even though we haven't changed. Come back home. And that's unhealthy. That's a fundamentally unhealthy relationship. No, we're not going to come back home unless you admit that you nominated a a, a racist with no legitimate policies, with no training, who is alienating and promoting, you know, these terrible things. No, we're not going to come home to that. So that's why it's disgusting to me. So if
0: someone lives in Utah and they... Want to vote McMullen, their vote matters tremendously, you would yes. say, even if McMullen can't win the president. That's right. I, there is a way that he can win, but it involves a lot of things having to go yeah. right. Um, but someone in Utah can obviously find a reason why their McMullen vote would be valuable. What about someone who is interested in him that does not live in Utah? What does that vote say? <sighs>
1: So, we don't know. Uh, a lot of the polls are not bothering to track him. So, there's don't know what kind of effect he's having in the Mountain West. And that's where he's really focusing on his campaign stops, Utah, but also okay. the related states. So, I'd say there's there's kind of a, a circle of, of states that uh, are particularly valuable to vote, Evan McMullen, you know, there's a, a much greater chance of, if not taking the state, at least taking a significant number of the votes, and, uh, and, and that being a message, other states, uh, you know, so for example, I'm, I'm a strong Evan McMullen supporter, but I'm in Oklahoma, and regrettably our laws prevent write-ins. And so I technically cannot vote. And the Evan McMullen campaign is asking their people to, to write in his name anyway. And they say, you know, we'll try to get it to count some way. But that seems like uh, magical thinking to me. Um, well, so
0: that was going to be my next question was, in which case would someone who says, well, Alan, what you just described, that sounds like me. Those are the things I care about, but I'm not in a state where McMullen's on the ballot, what does a person like that do if they are Uh -uh. of the same mind
1: as you are? So I think you have two two main options, and both of them have to do with public signaling. If if uh, if we go back to this okay. idea that that each vote is uh, is both part of a process, a, a political process, but it's also a signal to political parties about what is acceptable and what is desirable. It's a very very yeah. each individual one is extremely small signal. Okay, so we're not let's, we're not going to be delusional about it, but it is a signal. Okay, and I think um, I think your options are to either not vote at the top, but definitely vote down ballot. You know, let it be known that you know you're you're voting. You're just not going to vote for for a president if you feel compelled to to vote for neither of the two major uh, parties. Just don't vote for that. Uh, but but let that be known. I mean, not everybody is in a position with their jobs and families to, to be public about it. But if you are, let that be known, because you'd be surprised who's paying attention and who's listening. And the worst thing that can happen is people remain silent, because when people remain silent, you don't expect the GOP to change. Don't expect a new party to come up that's going to be better. We need to be making some noise. And, and uh, so that's possibility. I mean you know, the alternatives, uh, you know, I think Gary Johnson would be uh, an alternative. I I don't think you'd make a great president. But, but uh, as an again, as a signal to say this, this is unacceptable. And uh, this is closer to to, to acceptable. I think that can be I think that can be valuable.
0: Just so that we can just so that listeners can get a sense of where you're coming from. Why are you not in oklahoma say willing to vote for hillary to keep trump out of the white house what what is the thing that yeah, keeps you sure from crossing the aisle because because surely yeah. that would also send a signal to the gop yes right? it would i mean a, if it definitely if, would you know if they can tell that people are switching sides, that that also sends a signal yeah.
1: um so f- for me and for many people that i know in- including people who have voted uh, Democrat in the past. One of the most alarming things is uh, the DNC's uh, platform on, on the Hyde Amendment, which is calls for the repeal of the Hyde Amendment, which would allow for federal funds to be used uh, for abortions. And, um, you know, half of the country or so is split on whether or not abortion is, is, is immoral, whether it should be allowed, um, and we are living in a, in a, in a country where there's increasing tension between religious and secular people, and, and that's not going to go away. And one of the things that I've been advocating for, and many, many others, not just me, not primarily me, is, is, is a, a thick pluralism, a confident pluralism that John Inazoo, uh talks about, and... Um, repealing the Hyde Amendment, what, what that would do is uh, two things or maybe three things that really concern me. One is it's a signal to me that the, the, the DNC and, and Clinton, who has come out and said that it's not only part of her party's platform, but she supports it and she's proud of this uh, from what I can tell. Uh, She's not concerned about the religious convictions of those who believe that abortion is murder. And so she's comfortable saying, we're going to take your federal tax dollars and use those to do something that you believe to be profoundly immoral. Um, Yeah so so that's very concerning the the uh, the uh, um the other thing the other related part of that is uh i, I believe and many others believe that religious liberty questions are only going to come up more and more and the stance that i want us to take as a nation is asking the question how can we live at peace together uh, so much as it's in our in, in our power, uh, w- what can this look like? Because we're going to be neighbors with people who profoundly disagree with us on whatever issue, whatever yeah. whoever you are, you're going to live next to people who t- believe very different things. So, what does it look like to live peacefully? And and that's going to be uh, uh, that's going to be shifting. It's going to be hard to do. But for me, a president who comes out of the gate saying. This is one of the central religious liberty issues for most evangelicals, and I'm just gonna wipe this away. That to me, is a shot across the bow, and that deeply concerns me. and uh, so so, so that's a problem. And the third thing is, is that i I suspect it would lead to to a rise. Uh, and the number of abortions we've been last under Obama, there's been a, a lot of pro-life advances and, and I don't think abortions have gone up. But uh, opening federal funds for that, I suspect would increase uh, the number of abortions. And uh, that's a a serious issue. So it's it's not just about the abortion issue. There's this whole wide, uh, you know, related questions about living together and pluralism and religious liberty. Uh, But that, I I think, is a good, concise explanation of of one of the reasons why I can't in good faith uh, support her.
0: Man, that is great. And this is the first and hopefully the only time on this podcast that a guest will ever bring up such a plethora of great questions and discussion topics and then i have to cut them off because we don't have time to talk about them that's normally the whole point of being here um but yeah. for the current purposes just suffice to say that's great you're sort of establishing yourself as a bona fide conservative i have i want to push back on a few of those things and dig into them more we'll have to do that at a different time and so we'll just, we're just going to let you have the last word there but thank you alan and thanks for telling us a little bit about evan and uh i guess if people want to figure out more about him or whether their vote for him would be strategic where would you point them
1: um evan i mean that's where that's that's where you should go and there's a lot of information about how to vote for him and where and and uh all those things so that's the place to go
0: okay thanks so much man i look forward to talking to you in the future
1: all right thanks
0: Okay, now on to the main course. Uh, this is more of a citizen-to-citizen citizen conversation, less than like me interviewing an expert. Although Neil is a very smart guy, we're more like debating between equals, friends. We're trying to model a charitable debate slash dialogue. Um, Neil talks fast. I try and keep up when I'm talking with him. So, as Samuel L. Jackson's character said in Jurassic Park, "Hold on to your butts." I'm here with Neil DeGrade. Neil, I met you when we wrote a song together for Pacific Gold, one of my bands. It was an ill-fated song. It turned out so righteously psychedelic that it didn't get used. I love it, though. I still love it. Well, I appreciate that. But we had a really great time that day and have stayed in touch ever since. And one of the things we've talked about at various points in our friendship is that you are a third-party kind of a guy. You're a libertarian. Yes, correct. Now... The topic of this podcast is depolarization. Let's find somewhere in the middle between left and right. And one of the options for getting out of the binary Republican Democrat is third parties. So I thought it would be instructive to have you on and get your perspective. I'm also going to challenge you a little bit as to why third party options are actually better. We're gonna do a little devil's advocate stuff. But mostly I just want to hear your perspective because you're a thoughtful guy. You've spent a lot of time thinking about this. And it's one more way that we can kind of break out of our half the country is stupid, half the country is great dichotomy that we so easily find ourselves entangled in. That would be fantastic.
2: So let's, That'd hope, be fantastic. let's hope we succeed. Even if we can drop even if we could drop just one drop of warm
0: water in that cold bucket. Yeah. Uh, you know. That would be good. Yeah, I agree. So tell us a little bit of background on yourself politically. When did you realize you were a libertarian? How long have you identified as a libertarian, et cetera? Okay. I have uh, – I was, I was raised in a Republican family.
2: The first election I remember was uh, Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. And so I, I grew up in that – under that slant. And we didn't have a lot of political discussions around the House, but it it was similar to what we hear in the public, is that basically the other side isn't paying attention, they're they're not informed, they're ignorant, and we have the answers. As I grew older, different things pulled me in different directions. One of the things that would pull me towards Democrats and the left was this idea that there was compassion, and they actually cared about the little guy, they cared about minorities, and the Republican policies didn't reflect that. The thing that really... Pulled me, that weaned me off of the Republican Party into libertarianism was George W. Bush specifically. Okay, I don't dislike him. I Actually, I think he's a well-intentioned guy. But what it was is when when I started noticing that okay, Republicans are small government, they're limited government, they're fiscal responsibility. And when I talk about fiscal responsibility, I'm not really talking about the political idea of that I'm talking about the personal idea that you and I we can't go out and make more money than we spend and be financially. Healthy. So, what weaned me off of um, of that was just watching the debt increase, 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 and the size of government increase. None of the changes were really implemented at any time, and and the same blame shift has been going on over time. Uh, it's It's Congress's fault. You know, he's being blocked by Congress. He's being blocked by this. But I've just watched president after president in my lifetime increase the size of government, increase the amount of regulations in our life, and increase the amount of control they assert over us. And for me, the answer was in the
0: Libertarian Party. Why? Specifically, I mean, there's there's sort of an obvious answer, which is because the Libertarian Party goes further – in wanting fiscal responsibility and less regulation. But is it more specific than that, or is it just they most closely represent your feelings on that?
2: Well, most libertarians are kind of self-styled. The party is not excellent at communicating. Uh, The party does not really have a centralized vision, but it attracts a certain type of person. Um, That person can skew from the person who's a, a prepper, getting ready for the end of the world. Uh, who doesn't want to follow anyone's rules, and it's going to be every man for himself, yeah. and that's the best way, as Mother Nature or God intended. And, you know, all the way to the other people who are, who just – hey, they, they want more liberty to do um, what they want with their life. They want to be able to pick the light bulb they plug into their house. They want to be able to, you know, have more control over their money and shaping the world around them. So, for libertarianism, I guess why I chose that it was what my understanding of what it was – and what it means to be a libertarian is what swayed me. And so the first thing would be the non-aggression principle. Okay? And the non-aggression principle is is really there's there's a number of names for it. The non-aggression axiom uh, also it's called. And that is the idea that you don't, you know, force things on others. You don't bully people. The government doesn't do it. We don't do it to each other. We don't do it to other countries. And that, that would be a very short definition. I mean, people can Google this and come up with some very eloquent definitions of what the sure. non-aggression principle yeah. is. But for me, that idea that like, you know, there's a lot of laws on the books that really have nothing to do with anything that harms someone else. It, it would be only self-inflicted harm if we feel like it wasn't good for them or harm on another consenting party. Uh, for example, I, I was raised Christian and I am a Christian and I have very conservative views about what God intended for marriage. But as a libertarian, I feel no need to impose that on the general population. Interesting. I, actually, I think it would be ungodly of me to do so or trying to play God for other people because they – God gave them the ability to choose right or wrong for themselves. And he's going to hold – I believe he's going to hold them accountable. So in the end, I don't need government – to do what I believe is right or wrong in these areas. So any area where it comes to, whether it's uh, legalization of drugs, marriage, a lot of these issues, uh, I felt the government had no place in defining marriage. Even for me as someone who believes in marriage, and the law may have supported my view of marriage, I thought it was a dumb law because I didn't believe the government had the right to tell people what marriage was. That was uh, that was something sacred or something not sacred, but they had the right to decide what
0: that was for themselves. Let's, let's talk about that for a second because that's a nice moment of depolarization you are a person with traditionally conservative views about for instance homosexual marriage and yet Mm -hmm. the last thing that you want is a government that tells people who can and can't marry
2: Right. Well, I think we get confused sometimes when the government takes our side on an issue. We think they did the right thing. But uh, we forget, you know what I mean? Like uh, the Henry Ford quote about, you know, be careful when the government uh, steps in to help someone because, you know, or try to take care of people because look at what happened in the Native American when they did that. They try to take care of the Native Americans. So it doesn't matter what side of the issue you're on someone else can come into power and it goes the other way. We see that same fear in the election. We've had Obama for the last eight years and the the utter fear struck into people's heart that Donald Trump's going to step in and ruin their way of life because government has the power to do that. It has the power to dramatically change things on a micro scale. When we talk about um, the, the non-aggression principle, it also applies to not just marriage, uh, I think drug use. Uh, myself, I'm not a drug user. But I don't see someone getting high and taking a nap on their couch as criminal behavior. That's their personal choice. It doesn't affect us. Now, if someone takes a drug and goes out to commit a crime... That crime is the crime, not the drug. So there, is, there are so many areas where the government has gotten into – as a libertarian, it's frustrating to see how much they're in our business when it has to do with personal choice and personal decisions. I think that that is a great dividing line for me when it's a decision that is between two consenting adults and whether I agree with it or not, whether I agree with their take on it, whether if they were a friend of mine, I would tell them it was right or wrong. That's not the issue. Government does – it cannot effectively – Operate in that area and creates polarization by trying to operate in those areas. So on top of that, if I was going to take the non-aggression principle sort of to the next level that attracted me to libertarianism is the idea that what you do and think can actually affect the world around you Uh, with a large centralized government, it's very difficult to impact and change the shape of your own community, because things are being made at a, such a different level than the one you actually live on. One of the things that attracted me about libertarianism is the idea that I would hear Ron Paul talk about giving the power back to the states and the states then giving the power back to the towns and the counties where that I can have an idea I can articulate this idea of how I want to see things changed I can rally my friends and we can show up at a town hall meeting and change our world that we live in that was so attractive to me for about libertarianism because we've well, a lot of us have grown up under this notion that we're just a number we're small we, we can't affect much change and we take out that frustration like a punching bag
0: on social media I want to agree with you on something and then I want to push back on something else. I think you could take that argument even further and say a lot of the Trump support is putting all of that anger and that helplessness and saying this candidate will fix it all for me which is exactly opposite of what you want government to do.
2: Oh, yes. Authoritarian is what what Trump is is pushing. I mean, that's what people in politics push now in general.
0: It's hard to find someone who doesn't. Well, Trump is just the most obvious, right? He says, I am the only one who can save you, essentially, is the message of a lot of his speeches. And that was the message of the Republican convention, his main keynote speech there. But let me push back. So my wife and I go to town hall meetings about mm-hmm. tree regulation <laughs> because the, the the city that we live in is very wooded and it's uniquely wooded for the Seattle area. And so we sometimes go to these meetings and we, we hear what's going on. They're talking about what are the rules for developers? How many trees can they cut down? Which trees are protected? Which wetlands are protected? Now, two things about that, though. Number one, we're going and we're asking our local government to enact laws that restrict the actions of developers. If I was totally free market... I would not want those developers to have any laws and it would just be leveled and there's yes. just houses everywhere. So there's obviously some kind of a balance that needs to be struck there. Are you just saying you don't want federal government and you do want local government?
2: Yeah, I, I think across the Libertarian Party, that's like the, the bottom line, If whether you're Libertarian or not, is if you see that regulations like that should be enforced federally or as locally as possible. The more local and the more specific the scenario you, you would implement regulations, the more dynamic it can be. Because there's actual people with actual problems not hypothetical problems not numbers on a paper you have people you have the joneses who have the house that want to clear cut the birches and you have you know the rest of the people in the neighborhood are like no this is helping our aesthetic here i'm all for those decisions being made i mean we we need to make those decisions in our life and we need to make those decisions with the community i just think they shouldn't be made at too great of a distance with broad crude strokes just knocking over exceptions to those rules that could come up sure so uh, as libertarians in general i think one of the like you know bill maher when i watch him he kind of paints them as you know libertarians just want to see skeletons you know walking around starving and throwing up in the gutter and i haven't met that libertarian who really truly wants that outside of the prepper kind of edge of libertarianism can we just, which
0: can we call preppers survivalists or is that a derogatory term i
2: don't know like that's I kind the term of, i've always heard i kind of re- i relate to them like yeah prepper is like prepping for the end of the world the yeah, zombie right. apocalypse whatever it is the you know survivalist the rugged individualist would be the positive political term for that <laughs> so uh, I, I think that a lot of sensible libertarians understand that yeah highways need speed limits and uh yes if we don't stop certain behaviors and, and especially you, what your case would be at that point if people are using the right decision making is what's really best for the people in this community. Right. What's is this our ar- which arguments working for everyone? Yes, you have the right to make individual decisions with your property and your space, but we understand too. I mean, un- logically understand that everything's connected. Our well being and happiness sure. is connected to one another. Sure. And sometimes that's not communicated from when people hear and how quickly we drive by and just hear information. When you hear libertarian talking about open free markets, I think people get hung up on the idea that they hear no regulation. When you hear deregulation,
0: you hear no regulation. Or when you hear moving regulation. So the tree example actually brings up the next level of local government. So as we're at these meetings and we're talking about tree regulation, one of the things that the city says back to us, the concerned citizens, is, look, we have a mandate from the state of Washington that we need to add X number of buildings in the next 20 years That number is based on the number of people that the state of Washington anticipates will be moving to the Seattle area. And you don't just want nonstop sprawl. So you have to change density. That's just a fact. And related to that is the issue of low income housing. And there are people who have been at the crappy end of the system that have got the short end of the stick. And some of them are lazy people. Many of them are not. Many of them are recent refugees or immigrants, hardworking people. There are these systems at place in the city of Seattle and the state of Washington that try and at their best, they try and reasonably build housing for those people and support them so that they can be a part of our community. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, they usually do service jobs, they do low wage work that needs to get done. And you don't just want people bussing in 90 minutes each way from Bellingham to come work in Seattle every day for work because no one can afford to live here. Now, that's an issue that is directly related to the trees. But if you let all of my neighbors and I choose if there would be any low income housing in our city, I think you know what that vote's going to be if it's purely up to us. People are going to say, not in my backyard. It can take place somewhere else. You go to the next city, oh, right. they're going to vote that way. You go to the next city, they're going to vote that way. So I understand the libertarian impulse of we're going to be a balancing check on too much government power. But I don't understand there should just not be much. Because who's going to make that decision? That decision, and we're talking about the welfare of hardworking U.S. citizens. Their welfare needs to be protected too, but no one's going to do that at the local level because everyone will be selfish. They want their own kid's school to be good. They want their own neighborhood to be as safe as possible, which is understandable. So what do you do about something like that? Well, Dan, you just scored an
2: own goal on yourself for soccer terms. (laughs) And that is the idea, if no one can make that decision on the local level, where are we going to find the people who make those decisions for us on an upper level? Yeah. Because they all come from some local level somewhere. Okay. So somebody has to be altruistic enough to be able to decide when they pass laws or when they need to leave it up to the communities to solve for themselves. Uh, the problem you just described for me, it sounds like the kind of solution, the problems we solve every day when we work, whether we're working on music or, you know, you're working in some kind of, uh, in in a community, whether you have a job as a camp counselor or you have a job uh, as an accountant. These kind of things, you know, obviously you want a beautiful office space, but you need space for storage. Like, if you ever designed a building or a home, like, that's the problem. You design a house, you realize you haven't put enough closets in and then you put big enough closet space and your house is smaller than you want it to. I mean, what you just described is something that seems, I I would trust any logical person to be able to eventually solve Solve when you're talking about having to bust people in for work. You're talking about people who run businesses who are going to have to pay those people more to pay for their transportation to get the lower income people to work. So what's the solution? Someone's going to say, "Oh, we need to have housing here." So I mean, those problems. Government doesn't necessarily need to sweep in and guess at demographics and guess at things and make those decisions for us. When dynamically we've got a there's going to be a level of trust for the people in our country, even though we don't. We we normally don't exhibit that for each other. We don't believe in the best in each other. We don't trust that we're going to make good or bad decisions. But I think what the, the scenario you just described seems like any logical, reasonable person. Even if you guys decide we want more trees, eventually you're going to have to reap your own trouble there because you decided for oh, trees. Oh man, and no I don't know about
0: that. I, I mean, I I guess, but I think I'm a little bit more cynical about what happens when regulation steps out of the way. I mean, I I think that there are plenty of industries that would happily go years of their employees bussing 90 minutes, and they would employ whatever tactics they could, and they would rub shoulders with whatever state senators they had to to ensure that they don't have to provide bus passes. I mean, I I think we, we might have right. a difference of intuition about what happens in that situation. Yeah.
2: Again, what you're describing to me, though, isn't uh, an infringement on rights. Uh, you're talking about people making decisions and sure. living with those decisions. The person who decides to take the job and, and that, where they have to be bus 90 minutes to work, even if that's the only job they have. We, we can't guess at people's reasoning and and this, um, why they do what they do. But what you just described to me is not necessarily a crime. You didn't describe something to me that was a violation of human rights. So I think polarization really occurs in a big way when we start to talk about these things, where it's not a violation of human rights. So you're not talking about hate crimes here. You're not talking about people specifically suppressing a minority that never came up. You're talking about people who want You know, maybe the bad decision making would be because they don't want lower income people in their town. But if they decide to do that, there's a downside to that, too, because what you just described,
0: you're going to have to pay more to get people. Here's why I don't agree that there is a long term downside to the not in my backyard movement. Let's just talk about housing value and schools and the exponential way that math works with uh, investments. So let's say I own a home that's worth $300,000 and my town votes to keep poor people out. Well, what's going to happen is my value, Mm -hmm. the value of my home is gonna go up at a higher rate than the value of homes in other neighborhoods in my city. And if those neighborhoods allow poor people in, their home values will not go up at the same rate. And if you extrapolate that over time, Equity going up on one's house is exponential, right? So it's worth $300,000 one year. It goes up 10%. It's Mm -hmm. now worth 330. If the next year goes up 10%, it's worth 363. There's that extra $3,000 because it's 10% of the new number. It's not 10% of the original number. Now, if you extrapolate that over a 40-year period, which is basically what has happened in Seattle... No African-Americans were allowed to own property north of the University of Washington viaduct until the late 50s. You extrapolate that over a generation or two. All of a sudden, you have people who are born into the neighborhood where the houses are four times as valuable and the equity is there. That equity can be used to start a business. Now, all of a sudden, someone who happened to be born in the other neighborhood, their family has less equity. They can't ask their parents for a loan to start their business. And now you aren't talking about an exact infringement of a right in the moment, but you are talking about the fairness of the level playing field or unlevel playing field. And I'm not convinced that it is not government's job to have anything to do with level playing field. I do agree that overreach of government can cause polarization and cause problems where there aren't problems. But I'm not convinced that the government's job is not partially to ensure a level playing field. What is your argument against that? What is your argument for the fact that doesn't matter, it is people's rights to keep poor people out of their neighborhood or allow them in?
2: I mean, the problem I have, one, what you're saying is there's no existing precedent for it. So you're talking about something that uh, a government has failed to accomplish yet in our country, even areas of the country demographically that have always voted for people who are going to do this, who have had entire state senates, governors. State senators in Washington who have all espoused this is what they wanted to do, level the playing field. And you go back into some of these urban areas for the last 40 years where they have all voted to elect people who are going to do this. And can you cite one example of one of these areas of the country that's been successful
0: in doing so? I don't think you can say like, oh – East Baltimore did it, but that doesn't mean you can't point to instances of progress. Redlining is illegal now for mortgage companies. It didn't used to be. There's just the first thing that comes to mind.
2: Yeah, no, again, steps can be made towards stopping someone else asserting aggression on another person, basically pinning them down and not leaving them out. But the problem is, is that. Making decisions like when you look at a demographic and you look at a chart and you try to implement changes just based upon the numbers. Let's say we looked at a university and we said, you know what, this university has too many white kids and not enough black kids. So we're going to, you know, we want to see that demographic match. The exact number we think it should be. Well, I mean, you have a problem right there because there are individuals who are unknown to those people who are enacting the laws that are going to get royally screwed over unfairly sure. and unjustly. So the question is can, not whether government should try to, but can they actually do it without creating more injustice themselves? Can they pass those kind of laws and not? just rule out someone on the other side of it to give someone else an opportunity? And is that fair for the other individual? So the, one of the things is, is that I guess what we're talking about, you have two two sides of a coin and I'm not really on either of them, whether you're Republican or Democrat, as far as their picture of what utopia hmm. in America looks like. And I don't believe, as a libertarian, I don't believe, I don't believe there's any precedent or any philosophical cause to believe that government can help us really get all the way to those utopias or even part of the way to
0: those utopias. Well, redlining Um, gets us part of the way to any thinking person's utopia. Does it not?
2: Yes. uh, That we need to, again, like the highway, like, you know, there's reasons you have directionals on your car. Let me throw one more. Speed limits.
0: Let me throw one more out there though. What about changing the funding of public schools to not be property tax based anymore? Like it is in most States in in the United States, in Washington and California, my home value is high, then my school will be good. And if your home value is low in your neighborhood, your school will be underfunded. That's an example of something that might level the playing field. It would make a lot of wealthy and safe people mad, but it might work toward a fairer shake for such, such that all the new students coming in who are in theory, equally distributed talent wise, natural ability they now all have an equal shot at succeeding or a more equal shot at succeeding than they did before. If you believed that, well, first of all, do you believe that that would be a good thing?
2: Oh, you know, I we're kind of debating around uh, a couple of subjects that are kind of the elephant in the room for me. One is poverty. Okay. You know, and one would be the quality of education in America. So- Part of politics that drives me crazy is so in Louisville, Louisville, we had this problem and we've been solving it in the really most asinine way since the late 70s, <laughs> which is in Jefferson County. Basically, it doesn't matter where you're born. Um, you were going to get put into a lottery and sent to one of the other public schools and busted to the other public schools in the state. So you could be on the edge of suburbia and be sent to, you know, really a, a very low income area. Uh, to go to school. Or you could be in that low income area and win the lottery and get sent into one of the better school districts. The problem with this as as a solution for the problem because it doesn't make the schools better. We just didn't we didn't make a single school better. Right. Money doesn't necessarily make a school better.
0: Well someone had talked but to talk about if there is I, a funding money for sure has something to do with it you know well you, you
2: can't make the school without money but we we know you can throw more money at the problem and that doesn't fix the problem we've seen that happen. that might
0: be true but there's documentation plenty it seems to me of like inner city schools just not even having enough books i mean that kind of thing oh yeah is ridiculous and oh, it's if messed
2: you, up and in, in, in louisville we have inner city uh, grocery stores that don't carry fruit because people don't buy it it's wow. a it's a huge problem. Can government fix that problem by forcing a grocery market to carry fruit that they're going to have to throw away? It's uh, but you, you have problems in homes, Dan. I there's just problems in homes. There's there's portions of the community that don't have both parents at home. Statistically, most of the time. That kid can get a great education. But if his mom doesn't have time to make him study, if my parents didn't have time to watch me study and make sure I was getting the job, I wouldn't have done well in school. I would have been I, I would have done terrible. So,
0: well, this is we're really crystallizing on the issue here, which is what is the balance between personal responsibility, broadly defined, and government intervention at whatever level? Right. This is one of the things I'm also interested in depolarizing because Mm -hmm. what I tend to hear is either folks from the left denying or at least minimizing personal responsibility and people on the right sort of making personal responsibility, the savior that, well, if all of the black families just got a lot less selfish and lazy, the problems would totally solve themselves, which ignores things like redlining and the accumulation of wealth exponentially and stuff like that. So whatever the truth is to me, it seems like it's got to incorporate both, right?
2: Well, gee, you know, again, I have a specific. I think I can more specifically define my view of when government should okay, get involved and the when they shouldn't in these areas. I, again, I think it has a lot to do with the non-aggression principle. I think you have to you have to stop bullies and you have to help the handicapped. We should have a philosophical discussion about morality and right and wrong because I think it really applies to the polarization in a minute. But. I think, personally, I would. I, I feel like our government, we wouldn't have the right government in place if we didn't truly help the people who can't help themselves. I also think we don't have a good government in place if we're helping people that can't.
0: Okay, I like that as a, I, I get that, I like that as a
2: distinction. And, and so what you're talking about is stopping bullies and helping the handicapped. You, you can't fix everything, all the other degrees in between. Government can't. We can do things as individuals, whether you're someone who has money or you're someone who doesn't have money. We've all watched the Olympics, and we've heard the stories before. Literally almost every Olympian has this story, and maybe it's part of how the editors paint it, or it's the truth. Uh, let me give you an example. There's a girl who is, is – Triumph for the Olympics in my town. She was born in Chernobyl. She was adopted in America, missing limbs from radiation poisoning, and nearly, nearly qualified for the Olympics as a rower for America. And you hear these stories and you realize, like, what would I have done? Could I have done that? Like, she literally picked something that she was at a tremendous disadvantage to and still somehow. Almost made it, you know, so part of the, the beauty of life is the struggle that we, we have. I think too many of us are pursuing happiness and not enough of us are pursuing greatness. And that's not the story in our culture anymore. So the idea that we just believe people are lost, like they don't have as much advantage of me or they have more advantage of me. We, we don't we don't believe in people anymore. And so when we look at things, we accept ignorance as an excuse too easily, and we have no parry at all for um, offense. So we're left kind of handicapped as a society to not move more and more having. A culture that is more and more childish, because we're going to depend more and more on technology to do and find things for us and places and and take care of us and more and more on the government to do the same. So unless unless politically, I feel like people start pushing back against this idea, we say, no, you know what? People are capable. People can do things. I, I read something about the pope where he was telling Catholics to vote for socialism, which which fine he he, it's I'm not a Catholic. He can say whatever he wants. At the same time, I was disappointed, not because at the end of the day, I have a huge major problem with people who believe in socialism. I had a problem with the fact that he just disbelieved in his own constituents, that he he jumped off the boat saying, you know what, you guys, you're not going to be the next Mother Teresa. You're not going to go out and help the sick and poor. You need to elect government to do that. That was the disappointment when I hear that sort of talk nowadays. And I think that's kind of how we look around and see our neighbors. These people are never going to do the right thing. They're never going to do anything good for anybody else. And is that a country even worth trying to save? I don't think it is. I think we need to start believing in people and we need to start giving them the opportunity to be great and do great things. And by that, I think that that really means government needs to do less and I have other reasons why I believe government needs to do less, and we don't really vote in the uh, elections as
0: much as we do vote every day with where we yeah. put our money and how we put our money. Well, so, let's let's use that to turn to the election, so we could you and I could discuss the morality of libertarianism all day long. You're gonna vote for Gary Johnson, I assume.
2: Yeah, 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 absolutely. Now, he is not my favorite libertarian ever. He is my favorite person who's on the ballot in all 50 states, and that was my uh, right. My dividing okay. line.
0: But it's a fairly easy choice for you because you are essentially a member of the Libertarian Party.
2: Yes. Yeah. Fiscally, he's very conservative. And I love that. I think that's a great advice. If I was going to give advice to my neighbors, if I was going to give advice to my children, is to not spend more money than you take in and to certainly not spend money on things you don't need if you need money. And, and that's in a nutshell, that's his approach. And then it also when it comes to our intervention of wars overseas, we've his argument would be that we've you know, we've been. Involving ourselves in intervening and policing the world for God knows how long, and has that made the world more peaceful and the world safer for us uh, and his argument would 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 be answered with the question no it has with the answer no it hasn 't made us safer it hasn 't made us better off and so the idea of libertarian in general, like Ron Paul and people like Rand Paul have been stating forever is we can 't go to war without a declaration of war, and we can 't just we're accidentally bombing people that have nothing to do with the war uh, i think that' I think that's terrible i, I just I, I really don't like that and when I hear the policies of Hillary Clinton. And I hear the policies of Donald Trump. It sounds like more innocent people are going to die around the world and more of our own soldiers are going to die in battles they don't need to be fighting in.
0: So that's where I want to pivot. Earlier, you were talking about executive power. You didn't use that term, but that's what you meant. Uh, the reason mm-hmm. that people are f- afraid of Donald Trump is because of the executive power that exists, and some of which Barack Obama has expanded and shown us examples of right. Okay. But given now that only one of these two people is going to actually become president this year. Yes. And given that it is not a normal election, say between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama, which is, we would call like a fairly normal election. It's not one of those. Is it the time to make that vote? Or is it the time to say, you know what, For the next four years, I have to keep that executive power out of the hands of Donald Trump.
2: Yes, or vice versa. I mean, it doesn't matter who I tell I'm voting for Gary Johnson. Whoever they're voting for, they tell me it's a vote for the other side. So if if they're voting for Trump, (laughs) they tell me a vote for Gary Johnson is a vote for Clinton. And if I vote for if I'm vote for Johnson and they want Clinton, other way around. Uh, Yes, I think that I I think in a way it it is that I will be not. I don't know who I want to keep out. So for me, it's not a problem. I can't decide who I like least. I probably I'm more scared of Donald Trump with the big red button in his hand. That's a really horrifying, horrifying thought for me that literally as commander in chief, he has the power to make the call to launch nuclear missiles, something I haven't thought about since 1982. Like it hasn't even been it's like, oh, that's like a real thing. We can make a movie about this. I think of all the Democrats running. I I don't think I I didn't know many people who were very enthusiastic about Hillary Clinton as she ran. I don't know anybody who that really was her ideal candidate outside of the Democratic Party. I saw lots of Bernie stickers. He was a really interesting character. I liked listening to him. I I'm really sorry that that's the best option they gave me to Trump. Like as someone outside there, there was nobody did anything to lure me me away from a third party vote in this election at all there was yeah. i didn't even i didn't budge for a second so i am not i i feel personally i feel sort of gyps no matter who we get in in the white house it's going to be an unprecedentedly unliked person i think no immediately it, that is at statistically
0: election. accurate no for sure yeah
2: yeah and so my vote for gary johnson uh in a perfect world he would be a different candidate he'd be more like a ron paul because i think it actually in a way he hurts libertarianism because he's not a hardline libertarian he would actually score more just as a a plain out fiscally conservative liberal that he doesn't necessarily respect the non-aggression clause in social matters which actually probably makes him more appealing to the average american because i think the average american is would like to see a more fiscally conservative government in a nutshell and a more liberal country. But for me personally, I just want to see the government I want to see the government not making those type of decisions for us on marriage or who I bake a cake for. I think that we live in a world where if a bigot outs themselves if we felt their behavior was bigoted, we can we can vote with our dollars and that's one of the great things about this country. We always if we had more value, if we looked at our dollar bill and we thought of every dollar bill in our hand as a vote, we're going to go vote for, I don't know, Stump Town Coffee to succeed another day, you know, to continue making coffee. Or we're, you know what, I'm not going to vote for Target today. I'm going to vote for this store. Uh, if we started seeing our dollars as votes, we would think very differently about how much power we have allowed the government because it's oversized to take out of our hands. Uh, whether we're poor or whether we're wealthy. If you're poor, those dollars count even more because you need to place them in a spot that matters more to you and and can help you in your world. I think the more money that's out of circulation and being controlled by the government is the less power America has to shape America to be what it's like.
0: What do you think of a non-libertarian voting for Johnson because they don't like Trump or Hillary?
2: Right. I I don't know. I guess... um, You know, if I wasn't for Johnson and them voting for him because they didn't like the other two, I think I'd be less biased in that situation. I don't see it as a big problem because I think Gary Johnson is a better candidate. I think in general,
0: you shouldn't vote unless you have someone you want to vote for. You think a vote for president, even for a presidential nominee that cannot win. You think that a vote for president is primarily a vote for a candidate and not a vote for a platform or a set of policies?
2: I don't know if I really have a stance on what you're asking. If it, uh, All I would say is I don't like to generally just tell everybody, get out and vote. You ought to get out and vote. I think you ought to be informed. Make an informed decision and then vote. If you if you bother to get informed, if you're just voting based upon you know what you've been the bias you've been growing up under, if you're not listening to counter arguments from intelligent people, if you don't believe that someone could ever present a counter argument, I don't know if if I would tell you to vote. Uh, I, I think that you should vote responsibly. That you should you should know the platforms and the policies of your candidates. That's one of the things that disappointed me about social media this time around. I've seen almost zero talk about policy. I think my mother in law. I'll give her a shout out. She's a <laughs> she's a trump supporter and she cites specific policies of trump for why she wants to vote for him she's one of uh, that out of i have 2000 to something facebook friends and i swear she's the only one who was ever talking about policies that their candidate is for that they're talking about everything else is salacious or um calling into the character or the personality of the of the candidates and It's really sad that the media has let this election and any election in the world come down to that where just what gets us the most attention. I mean, I would really love a media that just stuck to what really matters. If only media was uh, not
0: driven by advertising dollars, we might have that. I know. Right. Well, let me challenge you a little bit here. Lightly, you're saying that Gary Johnson is the best candidate available to you. Yes. And I ask you about Trump and you say, well, I'm afraid of him with the nuclear codes. But there are only a few areas where the president really makes a difference in terms of the specific candidate who becomes president. That is commander in chief of the military, foreign Mm -hmm. policy, and then sort of like a figurehead and a focal point for American people. But they don't write legislation. Oh, and they and they appoint Supreme Court justices. Now, I want to just ask you, and I'm not trying to get you to like change your view or anything, but I, I want to challenge you on foreign policy, figurehead, Supreme Court justices, and commanding of the military. If Trump wins, are you not going to regret that you didn't vote against him on those four things?
2: Oh, no, I will, I'll regret whoever wins of those two. I will. I don't want either of them. with Equally? Uh, for different reasons? Yeah. I don't know equally. I, I See, I... I can't cast a vote against someone. I have to cast a vote for someone. I, so that's even a if prior... That's a logically that prior is, thing for you. Yeah. Yeah, this is not... I'm not looking for a result here. I, I just need to do what I know is the right thing based upon what I've come to believe. Uh, I, we have a results-oriented culture. Um, the problem is, like, like you see in capitalism, if you put profit as your end goal. Profit. We're going to make a profit. Yeah. Well, if, if profit is the real reason you have a business, you will accept all kinds of shortcuts and evils to get to profit. Sure. And... It's the same when you become too results oriented that you have to you have that we need the Ned Starks of the Game of Thrones world <laughs> who are just like, I don't care if this gets me killed, man. This is the right thing and I'm going to do it. Well, so, wouldn't you I, say
0: that never Trumpers in the GOP are are Ned Starks of our day?
2: Oh, 100 yeah. percent. But I mean, again, you know, you're uh, you know. I think that the people that didn't want to leave Bernie to vote for Clinton because she's had a 30 year record of really not getting much done and really her last job. I mean, if we're hiring for a job, what a way I see her. If I was if I was an employer, I'm going to hire her for the president. It's like, well, what what did you do with the previous jobs and what's your previous accomplishments? And it's like, oh, my gosh, you had some serious insubordination in your last job or some serious
0: like if we want to go to incompetence oh man i i I have a lot we're gonna have to agree to disagree and i just have to throw out two points of reference that both paul ryan and lindsey graham republican senators said glowing things about clinton as secretary of state before the campaign season started i don't think the evidence is there that she was a bad secretary of state and we'll just we can agree to disagree on that because we're just not going to go into can we not go into Hillary on this one
2: yeah let's let's not do we it. We have for a more you, interesting yeah, I, I,
0: topic here that we have been in, that I've been enjoying
2: yeah, I'm just saying that from as a libertarian, and this is part of the reason I'm a libertarian because I see people as I see these two candidates as as the same side of the coin for me is that they want to— I understand to, that. They want you know, so for me, it's not like they're neither one's appealing to me at all. Okay,
0: uh, in that sense. And you know, that's fair. Uh, And And I, I appreciate that you want to vote on your principles. I'm just trying to crystallize for other people. Is it a vote for policy? Is it a vote for a person? That is murky. I think you and I would both agree there isn't actually a tidy answer to that question.
2: Well no, I mean cuz when you get into tidy answers you're talking about in the end what's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And this is where polarization really comes from in a nutshell. So if I'm a conservative, let's just let's just talk about a points of a compass, okay? As I'm a conservative, I see things as north good, south bad. And by that I may I may have religious motivations, faith-based motivations, I may have I don't know general from how I was brought up. Uh, ideas of what's right and wrong, but when we're talking about things, they're talking about north on a compass as being right. This is what, this is how things are ordained to be. This is ordinate for our country to be this way. This would be right and just. And when they talk about south, they're talking about evil. Well, when you get to the, you know, you we leave the right and you go to the left, they're not talking north and south, they talk east and west. They're progressive, westward progress. So, they're talking about two different things when they use the same word sometimes right and wrong, morally correct. The left has a different idea of progress and the, and the right has a different idea of the way things ought to be. So this is part of the breakdown of the communication is that when a lot of times Republicans are talking about things that they believe are morally right the uh, the left the Democrats are not valuating it really on a moral right or wrong they're evaluating on well is this forward or is this backwards mm. so you're talking about really one party really talking about right or wrong in the sense of how that word is philosophically divine. And another party talking about forward and backwards. But
0: which for them and, is also morally right and wrong. They just have a different right. definition of that.
2: Yeah, right. And so one of the problems when when you get into a public circle and you start talking about the way things ought to be and the way they ought not to be is uh, there's a really great essay by um, C.S. Lewis. And the essay is not really Christian motivated. He talks about all religions and puts them in a favorable category in this essay called The Abolition of Man. And in The Abolition of Man, he gets into the idea of, when you say, right, the way things were ordained to be. And by ordained, meaning that somebody somewhere made everything and meant it to be one way and not another. The difficult time I have when I talk about right or wrong or moral issues now is, depending on who you're talking to, some people are using those words when they have no platform in their head for those words. They, they're really not talking to you about the idea that this is how God made things to be, or this is how, you know, these uh, seven gods made things to be, or whatever their religion is. They don't necessarily believe that. They're agnostic or they're atheist, which they have a right to be, and uh, I think that's, that's their choice. But the problem with that, having a moral discussion at that point is impossible, so, you have, two, you have two different people, and you have a growing number of atheists and agnostics in America. You have a lot of, pe- a lot of these people who are voting for Trump's that are, Trump that are down as evangelicals and Christians don't go to church. I don't know them. Like, they don't, go, <laughs> they don't necessarily hang out with me all the time. There are, obviously, Christians and people that have their Christian reasons for voting for them, but they're not necessarily in that camp of people who are actively involved in their faith. They just have a certain idea of right or wrong. So, the problem... Now, when we talk about right or wrong is we don't we can't really do that publicly anymore because we all have a different idea of how things were ordained to be. So the Libertarian Party is really great in clearing this thing up for me. it's, It's pushing back because most of the areas which there's this heated debate over, libertarians say government's not supposed to be in that.
0: Yeah. You just wipe the whole thing off the table. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So it's basically like, okay, you think guys and guys should get married, girls and girls should get married? That's your business. Government's out of this. Uh, you think it should just be men and women? Great, go do that at your church. Whether you know, with so many of these issues and, and and the government's level of intervention, you know what? If you have convictions about that and you want to vote a certain way, I would suggest you don't vote for those people that uh, the government to fix those people's lives. You go try to help. You try to help because you can be accountable to that, and you'll know in that situation if the person's trying if they're not trying. Libertarianism, for me, really takes all of the stuff off the table that's causing so much debate right now, where it's like, hey, you know what? We're debating because government can't effectively do this, and there's no right or wrong answer for it. No one will ever find one. People have tried in so many different totalitarian regimes to force the country to live the way they thought they wanted to live, and it's never worked yet. And it continues to move in that direction in America of becoming more and more heated the more and more we get into these smaller areas where government does not have the finesse and dexterity to operate. And we ask government to solve these problems for us when we ourselves are sitting on our couches, not necessarily doing anything about it. Yeah, so my my move towards libertarianism, to get back to that, um, was these things, was that I felt like our polarization and our disappointment was because we were believing in government we were hoping in government to be our savior. When government is really our protector at best and that we need to keep a close eye on from the very beginning engrafted in our constitution was skepticism for governments and what governments were capable of. And that's why our, you know, Bill of Rights guarantees us rights and limits the power of government right from the get-go. And we're not supposed to trust government. We're not supposed to believe in government. We're supposed to Keep our eye on them and and watch them like a hawk and make sure they don't push too far, whether or not we agree with it. I mean, that's the thing that when I talk to people and I talk to other people that might be far right, really nationalistic Republicans is that I'm like, listen, hey, at the end of the day, morally, I may believe the same things as you, but you have to listen to me when I'm saying. I don't think government should do anything about that. I think government should keep us from killing each other, from stealing from each other. Um, I don't think government needs to stop, uh, make other people live to our same moral code, whether we like it or not, whether we think they're too racist in the way they think, whether we think, you know, people are too immoral. That Government can't do it. It's not a church. It's not It's not the grantor of this great utopia. Every great social change has come from people and the people living and thinking differently. What the government the government at its best can do is we have an eating disorder and it staples our stomach. That's the best it can do. It can enact <laughs> force policies that, you know, you force the guy to bake the cake for the wedding he didn't want to bake to, but he's still the same guy. He he may have doubled down the same guy. Sure, he's baking the cake or he's out mm. of business. But you're, you're not changing this world. You're you're just you're putting a band-aid over things, you're stapling the stomach, and Our only hope as a society is through education, is through a change where we're like, okay, we need to be better people. We need to, I need to not just vote to force a rich guy to help poor people. I need to help poor people too. I'm middle class. I can
0: do something for these people. Well, I agree with you on that. And I want to transition back to libertarianism proper in a minute. But one more example I want to ask you about, what about prison reform? What about... The evidence through studies of disparity between sentences between black and white defendants for the same crime. It's, ho- it's horrifying. That is an example of where the government should act, you're
2: saying. Well, okay, so here, here's a couple things you have. You have, you have a situation where um, when we talk about racism and the government's role in racism— I always ask people, like, to start the conversation, is there a law on the books in their state or at the federal level they believe is racist? Like at its core the law is racist. So, you know, obviously we we've had an amendment ruling out slavery, and we've had an amendment that doesn't no longer prevents women from voting. You know, there there's been corrective measures taken by um, our government and the constitution has been ratified to try to Prevent these things from actually being on the books, racism. So what you although, have, is institu-
0: although, really quickly, just to note, the Civil Rights Act, which basically everybody is into, was judicial overstep. It, they used the Commerce Clause, right? I mean, it's like yeah. so. It's not all, not all the racist stuff that has gotten been gotten rid of is just through limited government, conservative judicial right, right. processes. So not we have to understood. acknowledge that,
2: right? Um, So what we have at the end of the day is um, we have an implementation of law that is not being doled out fairly. So as a libertarian, my first solution is to look for laws that don't need to be laws to thin this out to begin with. One of the most dramatic areas we see this injustice happening is in the war on drugs. So I, I can't pull the stats up off my head. I've done a lot of reading on this. This this really troubles me. Poor people, and then especially demographic areas that uh, are represented more by minorities are even more affected unjustly. The fact of the matter is, it's hard to go into the suburbs, and it's hard to arrest wealthy people for these things. They can fight back, and it's harder to mistreat wealthy people yeah. uh, in crime. And so. They're getting away with stuff because there's a lack of accountability. So for me, when you look at the prisons, when you look at the incarcerations in America, uh, I see examples of Portugal and the Netherlands and other countries that have really cleared the books and, and brought drugs into a regulated area as opposed to completely criminalized That criminal area, area yeah. That, can you imagine – like, even the motivation for the crimes and in the, in the crime in these neighborhoods is built around this activity being illegal. So much of that would dissipate. And, and until we learn to enforce laws fairly, especially the, the war on drugs is one of the best examples of, man, this really affects minorities.
0: And this might be a, this might be a moment where libertarians and the left can find some common ground.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think, you know, for Gary Johnson, for example, for me, I, I felt that you, you saw it happen right away uh, until people really started to hate Trump, is that a lot of Democrats moved towards Gary Johnson, who were Bernie Sanders fans. Yeah. So, I mean, I think libertarians find a lot of common ground with everybody. I think that, you know, I think that the, they depart ways with the left in the sense of the, the fiscal nature of government's role, how yeah. much taxes there should be, which – I would challenge anybody on is it like what's good advice for you and how you handle your finances. What's well, good advice? I was going to bring
0: that up. I was going to bring that up. I wanted to ask you for an argument as to why personal finance is a good analogy for government finance because on the face of it, my thinking would be it's probably not a good analogy. Global and national finance are just so incredibly complicated compared to my wife and I's budget and our mortgage payments. Oh,
2: yeah, there's more moving parts for sure. But uh, how long would we last if we operated like a government if we couldn't force extract money from people?
0: Well, so I'm not pro- sh- I mean, I think that there are mega problems, obviously. And I, I don't disagree with you on that. But when the actions of the United States government or the Fed or Bank of China, when those things affect the real value of the dollars that are owed, I do think we at least need to have a conversation of it is not as simple as personal finance because no amount of debt I get myself into or amount of money I pay toward my debt or whatever will change the value of the dollar. But that ceases to be true at the global level.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you you talked about you talked about something important there that a, a lot of libertarians would talk about. If you talk about finances, the gold standard is when we abandon that is that you allowed that to happen. You know when you you allowed foreign markets to determine your market and the value of dollar because you went from an actual value something that had a substantial commodity that had actual value to uh, estimated value perceived value in our currency, uh, so. That's a big reason why, is that what people were crying about back then with the gold standard, that's how we got where we are. But yes, I understand what you're talking about. But in a nutshell, yes, things overseas affect the value of our dollar. But that doesn't mean that there's not a good way to use those dollars we have and a bad way to use those dollars we have. So would, is there anybody out there that really would argue that adding trillions of dollars to debt and amplified capacity every four years, no matter who's in office, it seems to go up. Is that going to be good for us? I, I don't see many people arguing that that is. Yeah, and that's how and I, I think, think it most applies people to people
0: want the budget to be more balanced. I just, I am suspicious of overly simplistic arguments for balancing the budget. Is That's what I'm right. brushing up against.
2: I'm not a budget economic expert. I just, I, I love when I hear Rand Paul, uh, Ron Paul talk about, he's like, hey, Here's how we cut the military budget. And here's our constitutional reasons why we should cut it to begin with. And here's how we cut it in specifics. We remove, our, we have bases in 100 and so on countries that we don't need. We're occupying these countries in a continual basis. We're patrolling opium fields in Afghanistan instead of burning them. Why are we doing these things? Why is American dollars going for it? The idea that we have a politician in office that wants to responsibly use the dollars that people are giving and earning. you know, and Constitutionally, there's always been a big argument of legally what people could tax for. I'm a big fan of uh, in, in income taxes. So many taxes are hidden from us. People are like, yeah, bigger corporate taxes. Well, who pays those corporate taxes? The people that buy their goods. And so uh, part of the whole idea of the free markets that you might find from a lot of libertarians is that, okay, well – You can raise taxes on these companies, but guess who's going to pay for it? The people that buy their products, because the companies in the end aren't pulling money out of their own pockets. They're getting money from consumers and any added cost. So gas prices go up. They pass it on to you. Taxes go up. They pass it on to you. So in a a sense... By raising taxes on everybody, we make everything more expensive
0: for ourselves. Unless so, that, you only raise taxes on people who make over two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year or something like that. That does not necessarily raise taxes on everybody else.
2: Well, you just took money from normal people who will will actually end back in normal people's hand, whether it's Jay Leno who went out and bought let's say just say someone went out and bought ten new cars and you're like, That's ridiculous, I don't even have a car. I don't they don't need those ten new cars. Well, they just provided people with jobs who they bought those cars from. So when you take that money and it and it's not money that's going from person to person like when a wealthy person takes their money and buys a good it's going from person to person it's creating jobs when it goes yeah. from the wealthy person to government now nobody except for the government has an idea of what they want the world to look like and how they're going to spend that money and what's been proven is the government has never spent that money as efficiently as we have. From the $700 hammers for the military <laughs> to, you
0: know, countless examples of how much they paid us to put a road in your town. But the $700 hammer, if it's going to Lockheed Martin, would be the exact same argument you just made about Jay Leno and his cars he's buying.
2: Except for the fact that we didn't decide who got that money. The government decided. Still
0: goes back into the economy, though. And Lockheed Martin employs people to make really great $700 hammers.
2: Well, you know, uh, but again, there's a lot of drag on that at that point. It has to go through government employees' hands. There's you have people that manage this money. You have the IRS that's managing money, whereas opposed to like what's been proposed by other people, where it's a sales tax only system. Suddenly, you you get this huge area of government bloat out of the equation, which is the IRS.
0: Yeah, I I just don't uh, know. Which an- is more money back in the economy? I don't know enough about this stuff to really provide a good counterpoint. So we'll just we'll accept your position as a valid as a well, valid on. point me, on the let map you, let me make you a quick argument for something quick
2: on that um, okay and you can edit it out if you don't like it so uh we have let your tax, voice right? be heard we have income tax you have people that are like let's change income tax so rand paul was a libertarian proposed something i didn't like which was a flat tax income tax wise now why don't i like a flat tax because just because rand paul wants it to be 12.5 percent doesn't mean four years from now someone can't come in and say 40 percent That number adjusts itself higher. I like federal sales tax only, and here's why. Because it regulates itself, is that the maximum number the government can put on that will be determined by the consumer, not by the government. Because if the government says 40% on everything that's bought and sold in America, Americans buy less luxury items because they can't afford them. So it's just like if you have a baseball park, if you have if you're selling jerseys at those park, you ever go to a baseball park, you're like, wow, this this stuff is expensive. This is ridiculous. I'm I'm paying $10 for a hot dog that only costs them 75 cents. Well, there's a number that that park can't go any higher than because even though they're selling hot dogs now for $15 each, they're selling 30 percent less. Or, you know, or they're selling 70% less and there's a number they'll reach Mm -hmm. where they won't make as much revenue. So the nice thing about federal sales tax only is you tell the government how much money it has to run on and then it has to figure out what it really needs to do from there. So because, again, people will adjust that number themselves by buying less goods. And I think that's a fair system. I think that's a fair system because rich people pay more and everybody has more money in, in circulation. And that when the people who buy more stuff pay more and then all that money that was going to the IRS was going to all these other extra programs is now going back to people and it's in the economy because the problem we're talking about when we're arguing over all these solutions, the problem is poverty and poverty comes from the fact that there's not enough money in enough people's hands and there's too much money in other people's hands. So more opportunity means more money for everybody.
0: I'm going to have to get a different guest to like follow up on that one because I just that's I think that's really interesting and I just don't know nearly enough to begin to answer. Well, I it.
2: don't know either. It's it's mostly philosophical, <laughs> but I've heard other people argue it.
0: OK, so Neil, I've got two arguments to make. The first one is short and the second one is longer on my end. I'm going to start with the shorter one. When I mentioned to a couple of my smart friends I was going to have a libertarian on, one of them asked this question. Markets are immoral and reward strength. In the schoolyard, the market, quote unquote, decides that the bully takes everyone's lunch money. I want to add personally, in the Industrial Revolution, the market decided that the Rockefellers would become trillionaires in in real dollars today. Why will this not be the case in the American economy, in schools, etc.? Under a libertarian government. Okay.
2: All right. Well, uh, I love that question because you could replace the word markets and put the word nature in there. Nature is a moral and reward strength. Um, sure. So yeah. the only reason I bring up nature as an example, because the idea that a market is immoral is a fascinating philosophical argument when you get into a moral meaning that God or the creator of the universe, when you say immoral. Does not approve. Otherwise, if we're not talking about a creator's viewpoint, we're talking about, I don't like the what markets do to the world. We're just talking well, about preference.
0: But the market is different than nature, because in nature, if you are hoarding resources, those resources do not start multiplying at an average of 7 to 8% year exponentially. They do in the capitalist marketplace. So that's a pretty big difference.
2: Um, yes. Well, and sometimes they exponentially um
0: I guess cattle would exponentially increase or something like that.
2: But I mean, nature, I mean, that's basically if we're just going to draw from what we see around us, nature's a bully. Nature rewards strength, survival of the fittest. I'm not saying that's an argument for markets. I'm just saying that I think there's a flaw in the question a little bit. I think that that's where regulation comes in is that you have to protect people from bullies, and you have okay. to protect the handicapped. I think Teddy Roosevelt is a fantastic example of someone who believed in the individual still. Like, so much of his speech and so much of his action was the idea that of rugged individualism, that you can do this. We're going to make a chance. We're going to protect you from the bullies, and now go get them, kids. That's me. At, at, in a nutshell, when I look at politics, I when I hear someone say things like that, I— my heart resonates with that direction. I think that's the best for us because it, you take away the the real excuses, the real people who are pinning people down, enslaving people, and you break up the monopolies and you put caps on things that don't afford other people opportunities, but you don't hand it to them after that either. You don't force the playing field even. You leave it up to people at that point because who knows what people want out of life? You can, the government is uh, is assuming we all want the same things and we all need the same things and we don't. And that we're all capable of the same things. You know, the the notion that every man is created equal, that's the idea that we're all equal in value, but not necessarily all equally skilled and all equally capable. And does that mean that government's role now is to try to determine what that is for the individual in a sweeping fashion? and then control the markets to the point where everybody has the same input and output at the end. I think that was, that's an impossible scenario, and that's in uh, for the government to ever impl- uh, implement. Well, I'll tell you it's what a- I
0: love is I love when you say the government needs to stop the bullies and protect the handicapped. Yes. And I think that actually most people would agree on that, and when, where they would then disagree is – where do you draw... Where does the slider go to? Like, what is bullying and what is handicapped? Right. And that might be the... Disag- right. That might be... Well, you're saying it's the aggression policy.
1: Right, right someone not aggression else,
0: for- Someone else could have another policy that they think, well, this constitutes bullying. Here's an example. When I think of libertarians, I think of people who are like radically free market, which is making it sound to me like that's not necessarily a fair understanding of them. But Walmart paying their employees so little that their employees require federal subsidy to make up for the fact that they don't have enough wages. I would be tempted to call that bullying.
2: Um, you might make you might be able to make a case for it. I don't know enough about the logistics of that situation. Again, you would have to show for it to be bullying you have to show that there's there's
0: truly like that Walmart is preventing them from having other opportunities. Uh, I guess in the end. Yeah, so then there that's another distinction you are not concerned as much with fairness as you are concerned with rights
2: yes exactly well and I, I mean, think that's fine
0: but some people are people some people think that fairness okay. and rights are maybe equally important
2: yeah I would I would def- define bullying as they it's like uh, one example that would be in slavery if you could if you could say that these people are literally enslaved to walmart that walmart just denied their opportunities to make more money um not that walmart has more money to pay them and is not paying it you know because the, the problem with again looking at stat sheets from a distance is that you're going to eventually by trying to implement change that at at that level you're going to by the nature of clumsiness, just like you're trying to bomb someone on the other side of the country, other, other side of the world with a drone, you're going to hit people that shouldn't be hit and weren't doing anything wrong. So it's the government should be very careful and it should be very specifically looking for. Okay, this is little literal entrapment. This is literal aggression. There's 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 a threat. There's. A specific denial of opportunity, that people are being denied opportunities because of their ethnicity. Those type of things the government really needs to step in. I've heard people propose things like wealth caps, like, you know, the amount of money someone's allowed to keep in the bank, or I don't know if if there's a number or a line we can draw anywhere. We just, you have to look at and say, okay, people need to be smart enough to get out if they can. If they really deserve more, then we have to believe there's that they can find a way to get more. I know it's not easy. I've lived in a world where I had no money. I lived in a condemned house. I may have been smarter than some of the people we're talking about. I may have had more uh, of a network. I may have been more capable. But that's one of the, the one of the hard things is is that I think a lot of times if if someone had come along and scooped me up out of that, there's a lot of things I wouldn't have learned. In life, I mean, life is, I, I believe, here to teach us lessons. Uh, we get stronger when we meet resistance. Uh, I think there's a part of us that when people meet resistance, we empathize, and that's that's a good thing that we empathize with them. But at the same time, we should also advise, not necessarily try to carry someone somewhere. But I do, at the same time, with that said, I do believe there's people that can't help themselves. They're literally at a point they can't help themselves.
0: Man, I am so excited for all the discussions that will come from this episode. Uh, a reminder to join us on the Facebook discussion group. The problem is
2: all the comments and all the all the whales, I'll get murdered in the comments. There's actually some good, there's actually some good feedback, so I might participate.
0: <laughs> okay, I got one more argument for you, and I was saving this one for last because it's okay. my favorite and it gets as deep philosophically as anything else we've talked about. Mm-hmm. There is a progressive social philosopher named John Rawls, and he has an argument called the veil of ignorance, and it's a thought experiment. And it's an argument for why playing fields should be as level as possible Mm -hmm. upon the birth of a human being, right? And here's how the argument goes. I'm going to kind of butcher it, but I'll do well enough that we can talk about it. Okay. Let's say that you are a part of a bunch of people who are determining the rules for a world. And by world, I mean in the philosophical sense, like it's basically a society, Mm -hmm. but it's an imaginary society that doesn't exist yet. And you and a bunch of other people get to like vote on the distribution of resources in this society. Okay, but there's this veil. The reason it's called the veil of ignorance is you are going to be born into that society, but you do not know where you're going to be born. So you're completely detached from your own lot in what your life is going to be, but you have full power as part of this council to determine the breakup of the resources and whatever in that society. Okay, yes. Yeah. Now there are a bunch of you are given options Let's say you're given three options by the leader of the group whatever in the thought experiment option number one is one person will own all of the resources and everyone else in the society will have zero resources and Whatever's gonna happen happens that you know, maybe he'll get killed and mobbed or maybe he'll be a nice guy or gal option number two uh, Imagine it's kind of like our system something to the effect of like the wealthiest 1% own 40% of the resources and the other 60% are divided up between the 99%. And let's say the bottom 40% only have 10% of the resources. Okay. Something like that. Mm -hmm. And then option three is everyone starts with the same number of resources. So obviously no one's going to pick option one. But on option two, you're thinking that you're playing the odds. You know, well, there's a 1% chance that I'm super wealthy. There is a 40% chance that I'm very poor. And there is a 59% chance that I'm somewhere in the middle or whatever. The argument goes like this. If you don't know where you're going to end up in the new world, you will vote for the third option. Because you don't want to take a 40% chance of being destitute. It's not worth it for a 1% chance of having everything. Let's just say for the sake of argument, the 59% in the middle of option two have the exact same amount of resources as everyone has in option three. You're going to say option three is the most just society. And you're going to have a personal reason to say it is because you're going to have to be born into it. Does this make sense? Do you have any questions about the argument? Oh,
2: no, I understand the argument. Yeah, you keep explaining for the people at home, though.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's it. So if you understand it, so the argument there is more just playing field is preferable to a more unjust playing field. And so arguments to the contrary that, you know, trickle down type arguments or something like that are not accounting for the fact that. The trickle down people at the top are coming from a place of privilege because if they had to choose beforehand and didn't know where they would be born, which, by the way, is the actual reality on the ground of human life. We don't know where we're going to be born. We're born into a family. The argument being this is an argument for a more equitable society or at the very least just equal opportunity to succeed, which is really more what it's about. So Mm -hmm. do you find that compelling?
2: I think it's fascinating as a philosophical argument. I think it—obviously, there's a number of things that it's it's too gross to cover, and uh, it's, it's not fine enough to cover. So many of the nuances of the story, because one, it starts with the idea that the resources are distributed, not acquired, necessarily. So just uh, to, take
0: resource—don't think of it as resources. Think of it as opportunity, then.
2: Right. Opportunity. Great. Okay. Yeah. It, it's assuming—it's assuming—, it's assuming Blanket, blanketedly that everyone wants the same things so you know so one of the one of the problems is in life i have met people that are monks that have literally taken a vow of poverty and to you know to anything else would be less for them to people who are very wealthy and inherited it all or um so there's there's all different types of people all different types of wants i'm not very materially driven in life i'm not i don't buy a lot of things i don't require a lot of things um you, you know i don't A lot of things in my own closet I didn't even pick out for myself. So I I don't think about stuff that way. And for me, the things that make me happiest are my family and being able to provide for them. I don't need everything in the world. So there's people with all different types of background. There's people that will try to figure out, even if things are distributed evenly, how to get most of it for themselves. They're going to come to Earth that way. So one of the problems I have with the discussion is that it's assuming everybody wants the same thing. Uh, We talk about what people need. When we talk about opportunity, we're talking about what people want out of life. And people, everybody doesn't want the same things. All over the world, people have a different definition of what the perfect life is. But all I think,
0: people share the bare, the first 30% of that, of what they want, say. Everybody wants shelter, food, shelter. a place, you know. A you can make an argument for love. neighborhood. Right. Yeah, maybe, maybe love, you know, friendships. I mean, I think that what the argument is getting at is not people's wildest dreams, what it's trying to get at is you don't want to take a 40% chance that you're destitute. Nobody would want to take that chance. Why then would we have a governmental system that would allow that for the sake of markets or for the sake of anything? It's just morally more important to not have people be destitute. I guess... Well, hold on. You know, okay, go ahead. Yeah,
2: but it's assuming all people are um, equal in character,
0: I suppose. It's
2: not necessarily. Well, here's why. Because let's imagine this world turns out there's only one generous person in that world. There's only one kind person in the world and everybody else is evil. You know, okay. I mean, just hypothetically, let's however it rolls, is there equal distribution of, of good character and bad character of uh, ethical people and unethical people? There's, there's a lot of factors in here. I feel like it's just it's kind of too gross of an observation. It does bring up an interesting argument, and that is, you know, what actually is a level playing field? And the question I ask in the sure. end is like, yeah, I think presented with just that scenario in a vacuum. I you say oh let's start let's at least start from an even point and move right. on from there. Yeah. The uh, the problem is is it's not how things work reality and I believe there's a bigger story to our lives. Um. What great people have existed that haven't overcome some kind of incredible ad- adversity? Yeah. Uh, whether it's Abe Lincoln in his tiny log cabin with his crazy mom or his crazy wife or whoever the heck was crazy in his life, who knows who was there? Yeah. He he's seen some crap. He's seen some stuff. He had nothing. And yeah. does Abe Lincoln become Abe Lincoln? If Abe Lincoln is born in, you know, middle income home, does he become Abe Lincoln if he's born in a wealthy? Like The problem is, is that I think Interesting. We, we, we run into problems is like the things that bother me most in life is when people I know try to play God in other people's life. They try to manipulate the scenario to get things to turn out the way they want. And... To, to spread things out the way they want. And government, when it gets into playing God in the sense where it's like, this is what the world should look like and we're going to force the world to look like, as opposed to, you know what? You guys all have different ideas of what your world's going to look like. We're going to at least protect you to the point where you can pursue that that world i respects my narrative of what life is is that not just the good stuff that comes in my life is is like a blessing is that things that are really hard that come my way things i've had to overcome things that really have stunk and i wish i could have made waved a wand and made it gone away have made me so much better off i i do the, i have the same thing when i talk about um some of my friends like uh who are trying to decide if they want to have kids. And I asked them a question. I said, well, you know what's awesome about kids is that they force you to be less selfish. And they're always like, "Ah, I'm not sure if I want to be less selfish. Or, "Well, it's So what I asked then next is like, well, if you ask a little kid and you say, who's happier, selfish people or unselfish people? They'll say, unselfish people are happier. And I think in the end of the day, we all believe we'd be happier if we were less selfish. But we all have this struggle. We want to be selfish. We want things... That aren't ours. Um, and so I don't think the government has any role in, in promoting the idea that someone has something that should be yours, that that's their position to say that. And so that's where I have this problem, is that the government can't respect the idea that there's a bigger narrative at work in my belief, that there's people born into different situations for different reasons and there's a path to greatness for all of them in those reasons. I think everybody's born uh, their role in life might not be as significant as others or as prominent, but can be equally great. And to try to play God, we deny people the op- their growth opportunities in life. And we, uh, I, I think that, yes, we should prevent to be just. We have to prevent harm to people, but when it comes to opportunity, you should make sure you protect people against ethnic and nationalistic ideas that hold people back and prevent people from getting work and opportunities and racism. That should absolutely be outlawed. But when it comes to this other kind of redistribution, I don't, I, I'm not willing to say, yes, I would play God in the, in a society and try to make all things equal because I don't think that's what's actually best for us in the end. My argument is
0: entirely moral. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, and that's fine. That's good. I, I think that like, I sort of want you or someone else to start a compassionate libertarian party because (laughs) that's just not the vibe that I get from the libertarian party. I get it. The vibe I get is like people who want as few laws as possible and as as few financial regulations as possible. And then my moral view of the world is is such that I think people will abuse that. They'll abuse that power and abuse that their wealth will just keep expanding. But I am sympathetic to a view that says, let's keep government small. But the most important things for government to do besides basic services are ensuring no racial bias, no gender bias, ensuring Mm. "In, in that sense, it is opportunity, but it's just not maybe financial opportunity. It's just sort of like legal opportunity.
2: Yeah, I mean, controlling financial opportunity, it doesn't seem. I mean, there's so many factors in what creates a market and what creates invention that, and some of them aren't really always the most healthy things. Greed and avarice can create an incredible invention that we all sure. enjoy. So, do I think people should be greedy? You know, I don't. But. Right. Yeah, it's complicated, you know, you know, but at the same time, do I really believe I know best for the world to control these micro transactions in people's lives and how they should go? That's mm-hmm. pretty I think I think the operating the idea that when we get into these gray areas, which should be protected by a pocket of liberty and that. People want to sit in a chair in Washington and say they know best for me what to do with my money and my time and my personal decisions that don't really affect anyone else. I have a major problem with that arrogance and and that's what continually pushes me back into libertarianism.
0: Well, thanks for being here, man. Where can people find you online if they want to?
2: Well, I mean, I don't do a ton online. I, you know, uh, Dan and I both do music. Dan's an awesome musician, producer, and I've Thank done you. that with a uh, I've done that with a number of bands, and uh, I work on some films. I'm working on my own project right now. Uh, my band is called Dirt Poor Robins. Please don't come and heckle me for being a libertarian on <laughs> Dan's podcast. But if you want to come and check out our music, we're in the middle of writing a musical. We're about to release the last act. So the band nice. name is. Dirt poor Robbins, dirt poor Robbins. Robbins would one be like the birdie,
0: the birdie yeah, bird. Yeah, oh yeah. Not like Tony Robbins.
2: Tony Robbins would be. If awesome. Tony
0: Robbins were dirt poor, man, he he's behind the veil of ignorance, and he's like, I don't want to be that guy. Um, <laughs> thanks, man. Uh, looking forward to hanging with you soon. All right, you got it, man. Catch you later. That was great. Just a reminder that you can follow up with Neil by asking questions on the Facebook discussion group. That's Depolarized Podcast discussion group on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter, D-A-N-K-O-C-H. You can go to depolarizedpodcast.com. And Monday morning, we will have the wonderful D.L. Mayfield author talking about living among refugees Stay tuned.